Welcome to the Mertzbar podcast, a podcast where we speak to musicians about their non-musical interests. Each episode features a guest discussing a work of art that they love, ranging from short stories to Stone Age sculpture. At least, that's where the conversation begins. As you'll hear, we often end up in surprising places. I'm your host, Bridget Coleridge, the violinist of the Mertz Trio, and today I'm speaking to the cellist, chamber musician and educator, Mary Peckham. Mary's been such a generous mentor and friend to the trio, and she always brings a wide range of cultural reference into the rehearsal space. So I was keen to talk to her about some of the things that might inform her own music making. Here she is introducing herself and her work. My name is Mary Peckham. I play the cello. I am the chair of chamber music at the New England Conservatory of Music. I'm also the associate director of the Perlman Music Program, and there I direct chamber music program as well as the chamber music workshop. I asked Mary to nominate a work of art that's made an impact in her life, and she came back to me with three works. Later in the episode, we'll hear about paintings by Jan Vermeer and Helen Frankenthaler. But first, we're going to meet a sculpture from 3000 BC called The Stargazer. It's almost indescribable for me, but this sculpture is not even seven inches tall. It's on display in the Cleveland Museum of Art. It's ancient. It's from 3000 BC. I believe it's marble carved. It's very smooth, very simple. The lines are very delicate. It definitely implies to me a human form on the head, which is tilted back so that the eyes are looking up at the stars. And apparently this type of piece was prevalent during the times. It was carved too so that they can tell that the figure is female rather than male. It looks contemporary. It looks new. It doesn't look ancient. The way it's displayed is in a case, of course, and it is not able to stand on its own, so it's held on a pedestal. It's very small and yet incredibly powerful. Do you remember the first time that you saw this? I know that you've returned to it a lot, but the very first time. The first time I saw it, I I was a member of the Cavani String Quartet at the time, and we were doing our second recording project in the Cleveland Museum of Art Auditorium. We were recording an Al Brahms CD, and the producer for that record was a wonderful musician, producer named Judy Sherman. You know, we started taking a lot of breaks. Of course, we had to do this late at night because the museum was open during the day. So this was three or four in the morning. And I was going to go walk around because we could walk around parts of the museum. (laughs) It was kind of amazing. And she said, let me show you this piece I just discovered, which is my new favorite piece of art. I went with her and she took me to show me this beautiful statue and I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. It definitely was the right kind of experience for me to have at the time to forget I was tired because it was so inspiring. That's amazing to think about this little figure and then Brahms. And (laughs) did you speak to Judy 
Did you ever chat to her about what it was that she loved about it? I remember she was deliberately just silent. She said, just here it is. And that was it. And then when we walked back, I think we both cried a little bit. And I remember the only time she talked about it that I can recall is when I thanked her after that session for having shared that with me. And she said, that little lady, what stories could she tell us? You know, I remember that 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 was an interesting place to go because that's not what I was thinking at all. I was just caught up in my personal emotional reaction to this piece and the fact that it was so different than anything I'd really had that kind of reaction to before. When you sent the entry for, for the Cleveland Museum about the piece, I thought that there were some really arresting descriptions because one of the things I was saying was that it was so old that it predated the written word. And then when you look at it, you described it beautifully your imagination comes into play because it's, it is quite abstract, then it doesn't have a mouth. And so this idea of can it speak? So what other ways does it speak? Well, I mean, I want to ask you, I mean, I know you haven't seen it in person yet. Even though, you know, it's just so simple, it feels like she's smiling at you or she's smiling at whatever she's looking at. It's very positive. It just felt so can do. Yeah. It almost breaks your imagination trying to think about how old it is. And it struck me that it was so generous and there's a real humanity in how it's been created, almost in the abstraction of it, because it made me realise how much space it was allowing for me to use my imagination to see whatever it was that I was going to see. And I imagine that everybody sees something a bit different. Immediately when you were saying that, I was thinking about certain pieces of music that are like that, like Grossa Fuga. Written in, what, 1827 or what, 1826. And yet it sounds as contemporary as anything written today. You know, it's just purely intervallic music. It doesn't sound like it's from 3000 BC. But I mean, there's something incredibly timeless about that. And, you know, and other musics in their simplicity, you don't really know how deep, how far back it could go, what traditions it could be coming from. Why? I mean, why? Is it just a fascination with the sky? I mean, that's just something that man has been obsessed with, right? Looking up and trying to imagine the stars, the spheres, the magic of, of that. Do you find that in thinking about a, a statue or visual art or, or music as well, art that has been created in a time and a place that's very removed from your own, do you find it important to be able to locate the things that could speak to you in, in your own time and place, your own reality? I think I find myself different times, and I'm not always sure why. Sometimes I'll really react to art, whether it's visual or music. I can be completely emotional about it, and other times I'm more visual, you know, where I'll want to have my own story in my mind, create my own screenplay, if you will. I've definitely done that with The Stargazer. And maybe it was because Judy said something about, I wonder what she's seen. I, I've wondered. So this is not something that people could just set up on their shelf. They'd have to prop it against something or hold it. You know, was it treasured or was it a children's toy? What was it? Was it something, you know, revered or maybe it was like a tool? Who knows? <laughs> I have plenty of screenplays about the possibility of this piece as I do about Esterhazy. Because I know that you've returned to this particular little statue a lot, are you very aware of your own response changing 
so every time I went to the museum, I always went to see it. I taught private cello for a while. I'd always have an outing with my studio and we'd always go look at it. And I was always surprised. There was always at least one person who'd already seen it. So sometimes I was more fascinated by watching others' reactions to it. I started to notice too, it depended on how I was feeling and how many people were around. Like it was such a gift when there was nobody there. But I mean, I would always go back to see it. You mentioned bringing people to share in this experience and to observe their reaction in part. Would you speak about it afterwards? Was there any kind of shared vocabulary? I think that I kept asking when it was with my students and even I think my family, I think I would sort of ask, don't you think it looks as though it's been crafted in our lifetimes? And so we'd have that kind of conversation. I never asked anybody, how do you feel? What does it make you see? I probably should have. Not necessarily. I think that there's something very powerful in the way that you described your experience with Judy. She doesn't say anything, but she just lets you have whatever experience it is that you're going to have. Exactly. It does remind me, as you said, of being in the audience at at a concert and something that really profoundly moves you happens on stage. And if you're sitting with a friend I think that there's a way that you can can sense, you know, you physically sense that there's some element of it that is felt by the other person, not clearly in exactly the same way as it has been for you, but something else is created in the space between the two of you. I don't think words can reach that experience in a way. It's interesting to me that for you going to see the statue, it sounds like the most moving experiences have been when you've been alone with, with her. I'm so selfish, but I feel, of course, I'm easily distractible. I do think I I equally enjoy, though, going with friends to, for them to see it, too. But, I mean, it's such a popular piece, and it's so tiny that there's a lot of people around it. It's it's hard to see. I don't know whether it's selfish, though. I think that that it's just so eloquent and powerful. And I could imagine if you were in a room alone with that, that it would really feel like this conversation's happening. Yeah, yeah. That's why I, I say I get a positive... She seems very positive to me, this stargazer. Mary's second nominated work is a painting by the 17th century Dutch artist Jan Vermeer. It's titled Mistress and Maid, and you might be familiar with it. It depicts the moment a society lady is handed a letter by her maid, and the two of them share a very knowing look. As we'll hear, the painting has been an important companion to Mary's musical life. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the Vermeer because did you mention to me that that was one of the first paintings that you were really drawn to? You know, it what happened, you know, I grew up in the Western United States and I say that because my my family lived in Oregon and California and Arizona and Washington states, which are literally, you know, pretty much the west coast of the country. It's the natural environment out there is so beautiful. So even though my, my parents had me starting to play the cello when I was nine years old, I was outside every day. So I remember feeling growing up that going to a museum was a drag. So when I went to college, there were a few things that happened. I had to take a music history course. And for one of the classes, they had us all go over to the little art museum that they had at the IU campus. They must have had an original Baroque painting, and then they surrounded it with prints of other very famous Baroque painters from that era. And one of the prints was by the painter Vermeer. 
And I remember just being instantly attracted. And then I became obsessed. When I went to the Frick for the first time, I was going to play a concert there. And I went and saw the, the two that are closest to the entrance. Uh, and then you go into a much larger, in fact, one of the largest rooms for this other painting. And that's when I just like, oh, and I just, I remember finding it hard to breathe. It was that kind of sobbing. So it does spark the imagination, but just something too about the way the light playing on the fabrics, the textures just pulls you in makes you want to touch them. I don't usually step away to look at those paintings. I usually get closer and closer. Fascinating to me why they, they do that. I really love that description of the painting drawing you in. That's interesting to me partly because when I think about a painting versus, for example, hearing a piece of music live, obviously these are very different art forms and they're operating in different ways. One of the ways in which they're very different clearly is the way that they inhabit space. And you can think about that from all different viewpoints, but at a really basic level, the painting is static in that it's hung and the ways in which you can interact with it or position yourself in proximity to it are very governed. And there's a similar kind of artificial confining of an audience. If you're going to a traditional concert hall, obviously sound is able to overcome, if you like, those parameters and inhabit space in very different ways from a painting. But I love that way that you're evoking what the painting does and the ways that it too can overcome these sorts of barriers to the way that you encounter it. I mean, do you think that the artists who created these were thinking that at all? I don't know with Vermeer, but partly because as you describe, it's so captivating as a scene. And I could imagine just being completely enthralled in the drama of the story that he's depicting. And the fact that originally that painting did have, I think, some stuff in the background. I mean, a lot of his stuff, you know, there's a lot of symbolism involved. And those usually a map hanging on the wall or things that, that are supposed to symbolize different things going on in the world. But the fact that he just painted over all that, and so it's only those two figures and furniture where the mistress is sitting, uh, resting her elbow, it's very interesting to me. The third and final work that Mary nominated is really a category of works. They're the arresting paintings of the abstract impressionist artist Helen Frankenthaler. I feel like I got my visual art education through the opportunities I had to play concerts in different places. When I started going on tour, if we were at a place for more than a couple days, I'd try to seek out art museums. This would have been the early 90s too, because I think this was part of a special tour we were on. We were staying at a hotel that was not so far from the LA County Museum on Wilshire Boulevard. Went in the LA County Museums, walking around, and then I just happened to go in, into the contemporary art part. There was somebody doing a tour on this Helen Frankenthaler exhibit. So I just poached. I just followed along and listened to what they were saying and saw these paintings and thought they were so beautiful. Most of them were huge. Huge meaning anywhere from four feet tall and maybe three feet wide. After that, I, I walked through the rest of the exhibit of all the abstract expressionists. And I don't know, I felt like a new world had been opened up to me. And that is definitely like when we were describing the difference about being drawn in and then wanting to step back to gain a different perspective. I always find myself doing that. And I'm sure 
I'm not actually, I don't know that for sure, but I think that those painters were thinking about that too, about stepping back and what do you feel from, from looking at it that way, the whole thing. That's so interesting as a comparison with the Vermeer. And I'm wondering if, if I could ask you about how you understand that dynamic working in your own music making, because we've talked a lot about being in an audience and listening. But then from your perspective on stage, speaking particularly about chamber music, in part because that's already then a stage that's very peopled, and then you have more bodies that are in an audience. And then, of course, you have the bodies that aren't there that are the voice of the composer and whatever else that you're thinking about. How do you navigate that dynamic in terms of drawing people in versus enveloping people in a world? So I've always felt that when I was doing something that was a string ensemble of six or less, that the more there was a center to all of our energies in the group, the more that would convey to the audience and communicate. And most of the time in looking for the special moments that are going to draw people in, which for me is both emotional and sonic. It's the types of sounds and colors that we want to create and craft on our instruments together. How can we do things so that it brings the other listeners into our world? Which is a little selfish, I suppose, but you know, whatever, I'm a little selfish. I And then there are the moments, of course, where you just feel like you're just opening up and giving glorious, descending out energy that can go right to someone. And I think different groups do different things. I'm amazed by that. I, I think you want to discover that too with each group. And I know as a, as a teacher of chamber music, trying to figure out what is the thing in the dynamic of the group in terms of the relationships of the players and even the piece they're playing. What is it that they're going to be most successful at conveying? Are they going to be a group that's going to be more powerful the more connected they are? Are they going to be more powerful the more expansive they feel? Right. It's a very nuanced idea when you were talking about navigating, playing out versus creating a center and drawing people in. And I'm wondering how overtly you think about that in terms of the audience. I probably should think of it more. The way I feel that I, I do is, especially if you're coaching a group, my theory is that with teaching, more often than not, you're introducing concepts and ideas that are unknown to the student. And a lot of times as a coach, you're igniting things or ideas that the players may already have but not be realizing yet together. But I do think that, that having the set of ears that's outside of the ensemble is so crucial because, you know, it's very different when you're in the ensemble. The perspective of being a player in it is so different. And you can be sure that, well, we feel we're really matching. It's It feels so good, like we're really together and it's so clear how we're creating this color and there's wonderful contrasts. But then, you know, you you, you get five or... 10 or 15 or 20 feet away, and it's so different. As a performer, you really need to have someone you trust to go outside of the group and listen back so that you can make sure that what you want to give your audience is coming through. You're listening to the Mertzba podcast, where my guest today is Mary Peckham. When you talk about your experience of going to see, whether it be these paintings or the little statue, obviously you're not a painter yourself. So it's this very specific experience of being a viewer. 
But clearly when you go to concerts, that's a totally other experience because you yourself are a performer and you understand very clearly or you can draw on experiences from both sides of, of that, that space. And I wonder whether, are you very aware of, of your reactions being shaped by your experience or lack of experience in the actual act of creation? I definitely think the more educated one is about whatever art one is going to open themselves up to, it might enhance your experience and appreciation. For me, it was also the fact that I I had felt as a young person deciding to go study and pursue this uh, so-called classical music as a career, uh, I really felt like I didn't know as much as everybody else did. I always felt really ignorant and naive, and yet I felt more and more accepted about the passion for it, which was really wonderful. And it always made me wonder if that was what also got me on this. I mean, I don't understand why at different times in my life I've opened myself up to different types of art, artistic or creative experiences. You know, is that a place where I'm at in terms of my own personal growth and maturity? Or is it is it because of the environment? Is it because when you're going on tour <laughs> and it's, you know, airport, minivan, hotel, minivan, airport, minivan, hotel, you want to seek out something that's inspirational, you know? I just really love this whole story of your interaction with all of these works and I'm always very intrigued to understand how somebody who's not a practitioner is experiencing this. And I'm almost more interested in that reaction. And so I guess in hearing you talk about your experiences with each of these artworks, it just telling me that that's, that can be so moving and so eloquent and you can have so many ideas and, and observations and really perceptive insights into these pieces that have been a part of your life. I wish that I could go to a concert. I think actually that's what I try and do more and more is to find myself in a space in a concert hall where I'm listening, where I try and put aside everything that I know or think that I know about that experience on stage and just try to just be in proximity to whatever it is that is happening and to understand it that way. I think it takes a certain kind of courage. And also, like, you know, sometimes you may have an instant, overwhelming, wonderful reaction. And other times you may just kind of be like, oh, okay. But then like a year later, you remember, oh my gosh. these three works that you picked out, obviously they're just spanning this huge swathe of history. And I was really struck by that and just how how these absolutely different ways of responding to life as these pieces of work are, had really spoken to you at various points and continue to do so. And it makes me think a lot about the music that we play and how you think about that, both just as a human being, but as, a, as somebody who's often interpreting music that's very far removed from your own present. And also how you speak about that to, to students, because I think that that's, that can be quite difficult sometimes, the way that you talk about, you know, how you understand yourself in history I sort of feel, even though I'm curious and I, I like to read about 
history and find out, do some research. For me, I've been spent so much of my time thinking about the dynamic of the players, the dynamic of the player, the idea of how to convey or connect. And I've always thought I want to find ways to help people maximize their their experience, you know, so that they derive inspiration from the doing of it as much as they as they inspire others. So some some of that has made me a little I feel a little less I'm not going to segregate different types of arts because I want them all to have that feeling. It's all energy and how we react to it and respond to it. How we come to something that is not something we know so much about and still have such a powerful response to the point where we become almost obsessed with it, right? Different things that you learn along the way can help you try to go down the road of understanding what changes in the world, what changes in in how people perceive. You said something earlier too, did, did just be and just be in the moment, that's not so easy for people. You know, so you want to create a place or a time where people can do that. And if you can do that, maybe then it inspires you to try to really share what you've learned and what you've gained from whatever you are wanting to give to your, your audience. I also realize that an audience's and even an individual's needs change for what they need from an experience. Some people want to go somewhere and be able to move and feel like they're interacting with whatever's happening at the focal point of what's going on. And other people want to just take things in and feel or think about what they're seeing or hearing. So it's always trying to find those ways to create those experiences. And, you know, I feel like it's so relevant to the world right now, you know, really trying to be present and really relating to what's around us and trying to hear one another and not so easy. And that's it for this first episode of the Mertzbau podcast. Many thanks to Mary Peckham and to all of you for tuning in. You can find links to the works mentioned in this episode in the show notes, and you can also follow us on social media at Pod. And join us next week. We'll be talking about quartet playing, lighthouses, and early 20th century novels. Bridget Coleridge for the Mertz Trio.